Good afternoon. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. When I was about 15 years old, um, you know, my parents were homeschooling us. And um, I don't know about the rest of you homeschoolers, but you always feel like you were a perpetual guinea pig. Um, always trying to figure things out and always trying to understand how to best teach and how to best learn. And, and you know, everybody learns different. And, uh, and some people are really good at math, and some people are really good at the arts, and some people are really good with words, and some people are really good with words but not with spelling. Oh my, it goes on and on and on. Well, I remember that when I was about 14 years old, um, my dad decided that I needed to work on my writing skills. And um, so uh, he, he gave me a bunch of topics, and he told me that I was supposed to research these topics, and I was supposed to write um, uh, different varying lengths, little papers on these different topics. And I remember when he, he gave me that list and that assignment, I was overwhelmed. And um, just recently, I was sorting some of my, my things from long time ago. Um, I, I had the privilege of inheriting some bookcases from my grandma Walter, and so I was putting them into my house and sorting stuff, and I stumbled across this three-ring binder, and I opened it up and I found those essays. And um, boy, is the spelling atrocious. Um, not that I'm a much better speller now, but now I've got these cool things, you know, spell check. Um, back then, I used to actually have, I don't know how many of you know, but, but I mean, like before iPhones, before any of that stuff, you get these little electronic spell checkers. Oh, I loved those. I got one for Christmas, and then I lost it, and I asked for it for Christmas again, because I couldn't spell without it. But anyway, what is my point in all of this? I was going through those essays, and I found an old, an old essay of, with this, this was the title, and this was the assigned topic. Summarize divorce from the Bible. Um, huh? I was 15. Summarize divorce from the Bible. And um, I'm going to tell you, I, I read that paper through. Um, I won't show it to you. Um, but I look back on that day and am very, very thankful that my dad gave me that assignment because it was one of the first times that I began to actually, for myself, look through the Bible and try to understand things. And, um, and it, was, it was interesting because when I wrote my first draft, and I think there's a, I don't know what draft this is I have in my my book because it's all marked up with red ink. Um, but I, I remember the first draft where dad sat me down and he started to go down through it. And it wasn't just me. You know, that's how this works in a big family. Everybody got sat down and we're going to go through this, this topic. And, um, and it, it, it really helped me to understand this topic. It was an exercise and an experience that was really, really good for me. But I remember when dad first sat us down after he had given me the assignment, then he had everybody sit down um, and he was going to go through this. He had us turn to Ezra chapter seven. 
And he pointed out verse 6 to us. He pointed out verse 6 to us. And it says here, Then Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. And the suggestion that then came from dad is, all you kids, will you be ready scribes in the law of Moses? Um, what's it mean to be a ready scribe? It means to have an understanding so that you can answer a question about the law. It means you're ready to address a life situation or a question according to the law of God. Now, this is really exciting, actually. I, I, I find the law of Moses very fascinating. Um, it, it's, it's really intriguing to me. And at the same time, it's just, oh my, which is exactly the point of it. It's a heavy, heavy burden. Um, but that's actually one reason why I like to consider it and to study it is because every time I feel that feeling, I remember Jesus. And I remember that he's the one who fulfilled this law perfectly. Absolutely. And he's the one who's declared that I am not under this law. Because if I were under it, it would condemn me. It would be the ministration of death. <sighs> but you know, at the same time, it's glorious, it's good, and it's holy. And the truth is, is that societies throughout history can learn much from the law of Moses. In fact, a lot of your Indiana state laws have a lot of basis and similarity to what we have in the law of Moses. Furthermore, as a point I made earlier this morning, the value of studying this is not because we're looking to put ourselves under the law, but we begin to understand the way things work in the world. Like we saw this morning, the law of the Hivites and the Jebusites and all of that situation is not binding to any of us. But did you see how the reasons behind that law transcends dispensations? And it is very, and that's how we learn the mind of God to help us in many things. When I mentioned the topic divorce, it was, I wish I had a camera and could replay what I saw in this congregation. Um, you even heard some people kind of, oh, why? Because divorce is one of those touchy, touchy subjects that people kind of do this dance around. Because it's hard. And I submit to you that if you want to understand this topic and understand the will of God in this, that we need to have the mind of Ezra, which is a ready mind to know, to understand the law of God, to seek God, looking on to chapter 7, verse 10, we need to be preparing our hearts to seek the law of the Lord 
were different in this with, with, with Ezra, but to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Do we have that perception of knowing God? Um, I had a helper with some pieces of paper and pencils because I'd like to do a little survey. And if you were given the assignment to do a survey of the Bible on this topic, do you right now know some passages of where you would go? I gave Nathaniel, Nathaniel had some paper. Nathaniel, can you hear me? I'm ready. He's got kids these days, they distract him. But, but what I'd like for him to do is to come and, and give you all a little slip of paper, um, pencils if you need it, and I'd like to get a feel. How are we, this group, ready in understanding even where we would go or the passages that relate to the topic of divorce? So there's two ways I'd like you to do this. One, some of you right now immediately have references coming to your mind. I know some of you. Write the references down for me. I'd like, to, I'd like to see what references come to your mind on the topic of divorce. Some of you have like, huh? So what word or phrase would you go to your concordance? You remember these things, right? Or search on your phone. If you were to do a survey of this, what might, what's your familiarity with the topic of how you would go to find those passages? What are some words, phrases that are tied in with it? And I just would like you to just jot down some things. If you don't know anything, that's okay. Use a little piece of paper to take notes as we go through. Um, but if you do have some turns, it would help me to understand where you're all at here at the beginning because it's a really intriguing, actually, at least to me, it's an intriguing topic. And I think it's helpful for us to understand it because it is one of those very touchy, controversial, and people don't even like to talk about it. Um, and especially don't like to actually say, thus saith the Lord on the topic because of, of the sensitive nature to it. I want to address, to start, actually, the sensitive nature of it. Did you know that it's a sensitive topic to God? It's a sensitive topic to God. How do I know that? Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is dealing with a people, the people of Israel, who have in their relationship with God dealt with God treacherously and adulterously. And the men of that nation have also dealt treacherously and adulterously with their own wives. And God's making a point here. And in this, it's a pretty serious problem. It says in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. A little hint for all of you who didn't know what words to look for. You may not find much about divorce if you type into your phone or look up in the concordance the word divorce. So here is an important phrase for you to understand if you want to study this topic. The phrase used often for describing divorce is to put away. So if you didn't already have that, you can add that to your list of phrase to search the scriptures for. 
But you see what it says here, the Lord, the God of Israel saith that he hateth putting away. He goes on to describe part of the serious matter. For one covereth violence with his garments, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. <sighs> God hates divorce. And by the way, it's not so much because he hates the actual writing of divorce. He hates it because of what it does to people, his most cherished creation. In the context of this passage, it's also dealing with what is, he wants to seek is a godly seed. And divorce can really trouble that. And it's a very sensitive issue for God. Because he didn't design divorce in the beginning. He didn't design sin either. It's not in his plan. And it is something that brings great pain to God. I love the King James, which isn't really King James, it's a good old, good old and modern English word, suffered. If you were to turn to Matthew 18, and if you're keeping list of references, if you didn't have it already, Matthew 19 is one of those key passages. Jesus is being tempted by some of the religious leaders of his day. And they put to him a question, why then did Moses give, then command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? This is in follow-up to Jesus' declaration that from the beginning, God created male and female, and therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. So one of the passages you can put here is on the permanency of marriage is Genesis chapter 2, when God first instituted marriage. But they challenge him then. Why then did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Jesus' answer shows again how sensitive of an issue it is to him. And he says, Moses... Because of the hardness of your hearts suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It wasn't God's design. God's design is not for divorce. His design is for a man and a woman to come together for life. That's why we vow in our vows even to this day till death do us part. The word there, suffered, could be translated aloud. I personally prefer the word suffered here. Why? Think of the suffrage movement. Why'd they call it the suffrage movement? Well, it was allow women to vote, right? Well, why did they choose the word suffrage? There was actually pleas and speeches of, will you just suffer it? <laughs> I know you can't bear to think of women voting, but will you just suffer it? Allow it endure the hardness that you find it to be. It's a little bit of that theme. It has a little bit of that sense in it. And that's the sense that is here. Yes, he allowed it. But why? He gives the reason for the hardness of man's heart. So we see here in Matthew, we see in Malachi, God hates it. 
He's allowed it, but he's allowed it because of man's hard hearts. But it's not so from the beginning. So there is the, the, the overarching truth, fact, regarding divorce. If you were to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll come back to these passages, uh, Lord willing, as we have time, but we again see God affirming the marriage ideal of how he designed marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, it's declared, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Now, we're going to come back to this because it does tie in with Ezra, but here, before God goes into some of the more delineated details of the topic, he declares the ideal. This is the ideal. So let's go back to Ezra and see why is this topic coming up here with Ezra. We've seen that Ezra was a ready scribe. We've seen that Ezra was one who purposed in his heart to seek the Lord and to know the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach it in Israel. It was important for him to know the law when we turn to chapter 10. Ezra has confessed the great abominations of his people, and now he's got a problem to deal with. What are we going to do with? Because we now have a situation in which the people have not separated themselves from the people who commit abominations. They are now doing the abominations with them, and some of them are actually married to these people who do such abominations. This morning, I, am, I, I just briefly inferred that one of the reasons I believe Ezra was trembling is because he knew the law. He was a ready scribe in the law. Now, we oftentimes, those of you who are familiar with Ezra and Ezra chapter 10, jumped to the topic of divorce. But I got a question for you. Is there another law that is relevant to this situation? Are you a ready scribe? Do you know the law of Moses? Is there another law totally different from Divorce, is there another law in the law that may be causing Ezra to tremble? See, some of you shaking your heads. I heard somebody start to speak. Worshiping false gods. Do you know anything about the law regarding the nation of Israel of those worshiping false gods? Well, let's be ready scribes. Let's be ready, scribes, and let's take our Bibles and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. I'm simply going to read to you the law. And you tell me if maybe this may have entered the mind of Ezra and may have been what caused him to tremble. Deuteronomy 13, beginning in verse 6. If thy brother, the son of thy mother, 
or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is, thine, is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely, of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from the one end of the earth even unto the other end of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him. Does this law sound relevant to the days of Ezra? It sure does. We've got a group of people who have actually been doing this very thing and doing the abominations of those nations. And many of the idolatrous worships of other idols are, are including of great abominations. This is relevant. Why then was perhaps Ezra trembling? Verse 8, Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, Neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people, and thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because... He has sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. Oh. Idolatry under the law of Moses is capital crime. Capital crime means capital punishment, means worthy of death, the death penalty. That was the case under the Mosaic law. Ezra, as a ready scribe, I believe understood and knew this. I wonder if this is perhaps the reason why he was prostrate before the Lord. What is done here? What is done here? But did you also know, notice how in Ezra's confession, as I read it this morning, he keeps reminding himself and the Lord of his mercy. That's really interesting to me. That's really interesting to me. God has mercy. God is looking for people to confess their sin, turn from their sin, turn to Him, and receive His mercy. Ezra chapter 10 is awkward. 
but I wonder if it would be better understood if we understood it considering with a ready mind the law regarding idolatry. Ezra has a difficult situation here before him. Are we going to have a mass execution? Or are we going to humble ourselves and receive mercy? So a man comes along here, and he offers a suggestion. Verse 2. Here you see, the people are weeping. Well, let's, let's just reset this in context here. Ezra chapter 10. Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. There were some people who, I believe, were hearing of the truth of the law, and they were convicted. And... and and it was not just this outward ripping their garments. Brother Dietrich came to me after the Bible hour this morning and shared with me Joel 2.13, which is extremely relevant. You know, we're kind of shocked. Some of you gasped when uh, I played Ezra this morning and ripped up my old suit coat. Um, but in Joel 13, I haven't marked it here, so i got to go find it. Um, it makes a point here about what is really important here. It's not about ripping your clothes up. I told you all that this morning already. Well, Joel affirms that for us. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, Therefore now also saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and drink offering unto the Lord your God. You see, Joel understands God, God from the beginning. See, people have sometimes created this false idea that the God of the Old Testament was this mean, hard, cruel God. And that's not, it's false. God is God. He always has been God. And he has always been merciful. He's always longing for us to come to him as a little child, repentant, confessing our faults, confessing our sins. That's the reason why Ezra fell so prostrate. That's the reason why you see the people here. There is a true repentance here. They have recognized, they are acknowledging, they are confessing that they have sinned. So what might be the fruits of the repentance of this? Back in Ezra chapter 10, verse 2, And Shechaniah, the son of Jehaliel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and we have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. You know, have you ever read a divorce document? It's heartbreaking. It's a declaration that the relation to marriage is irreconcilable. Put that in other words, hopeless. 
you know what's so beautiful in our relationship with our God? There's no such thing as hopeless. There's no such thing as hopeless. He's always there, ready for us. And this man, I believe, knows that. He's going to present an idea. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. Over in verse 11, Ezra declares, Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers. There is need for confession and a covenant that is renewed with God. And then they move forward with a particular practical step. To put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. This man is offering a piece of advice to Ezra. They did not separate themselves from the people, and in fact, they created such close relationships with them that they ended up with the most intimate human relationship of marriage not just with these people of a different race. That's not, again, the issue. The issue is is that they were people who were people who lived and committed abominations. So he makes this recommendation that there be mass divorce in these cases. Now, taking what I know from the Scriptures, and I know I'm putting more into what's in the historical record here, but I, I, I sincerely believe that people and relationships, regardless of the racial differences, where there was believing spouses or repentant spouses, such as we learned from Rahab, such as we know from Ruth, I don't believe that this is a solution that's in play based upon an ethnic or racial issue. This is an issue that is in play based upon the life. Now, I, I struggle with this. And oh, you know you ever read about somebody and say, boy, I'm glad I wasn't that person in history in this moment. That's what you've got here with Ezra. He's receiving a piece of advice. Notice here, the man giving this advice to him is recognizing and saying, it's in verse 3, it's, um, it's according to the counsel of my Lord. This is, this is you to decide. He, he then goes on in verse 4 and declares, This matter belongeth unto thee, but what you decide, we stand by you in doing what this is. I believe Ezra is faced with a difficult situation here of whether there is a mass execution or a mass divorce. you know what he chooses, right? He chooses the mass divorce. I don't want to take issue with Ezra. Here's why. Because if you keep on reading down through this, we find that Ezra does rise up and it's, let's just read it because you have to understand the weight 
the gravity of the situation on Ezra. And it's, what, it's the way we need to approach the topic as well. Then Ezra arose and made the chief priests, the Levites, and all Israel to swear that they should do according to this word, and they swear. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jonanan, the son of Elisha. And when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. And they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem, that whosoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the princes and the elders, all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. Decree goes out three days gathered to Jerusalem. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. Notice here it's Benjamin and, Jerusalem, Benjamin and Judah. That's the region just right down there, the southern kingdom, not all the way up to the Sea of Galilee and all about. It was the ninth month and twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. And they move forward with the practical steps of it because it's not something that's going to be done all in a day because even the suggestion recommendation that had been given earlier by the man says, let it be done according to the law. This is not just something where we're going to whimsical say, I'm done with you. No, this is going to be done according to the law. It's going to be done in an orderly fashion. Why? You realize that the Mosaic law and Moses suffering them to give a writing of divorcement was a cultural, radical cultural phenomenon compared to all the kingdoms and nations around Israel and throughout history, actually. Many people talk about the Bible and speak of it as a chauvinistic book, anti-women book. In fact, actually, the very laws of Moses dealing with divorce were established for the protection of women. Because what everybody else did was just put them out on the street and there was no accountability. The giving of the writing of divorcement created an accountability in the matter. It also kept men just going from woman to woman to woman to woman. It was a, it was a way of protecting and helping these women. And even now these people are realizing if this is going to be done, it's going to be done according to the law. When I consider the ideal of marriage, I trip up over this. I'll be blunt honest with you. That's true for all divorce, though. I trip up over it. But here we have the historical record. Here we have what was declared to be done. It is fact. There's one little phrase that I do have to bring your attention to in verse 11 where he calls upon the people to make confession to the Lord and to do his pleasure. 
to do his will. This was something that had an involvement of God's leading in this matter. Now, some people have tried to use this to justify divorce in the modern time. Is that appropriate? Well, you may not be a ready scribe in the law of Moses, but I hope that you are wanting to be a ready scribe in the counsel of God. There is a very key passage that I suggest you write next to Ezra chapter 10 somewhere, perhaps next to verse 11 or somewhere, and that reference is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and following you write that there in your Bibles, because if anybody ever comes to you and uses this as some kind of a model to follow, don't forget that Jesus said Moses gave the command to give a writing of divorcement because of the hardness of men's heart. We see a very clear situation of a compromised situation in the days of Ezra, and they followed it according to the law of Moses. So where are we at today? Have you ever heard the phrase progressive revelation? Progressive revelation means that, you know, we had Genesis in the early first five books of Moses written by Moses, probably had Job written first. And as time goes by, God continues to build upon what he has already written. And there's also different dispensations, different stewardships, different ways in which God has interacted with his people. We are in the church age. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is written to the Corinthian church, and by extension, the New Testament church. Bring your attention to this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and actually even verifying it, again states the ideal. Dearly beloved, we must always be stating the ideal. We must always be stating the ideal. What is it? And unto the married I command... Yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Notice there the punctuation. It continues. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. We find even now in the New Testament church the disturbing, troubling fact. But, and if she depart, there are reasons, of life-threatening reasons, when a woman needs to flee. And God acknowledges it right here. But notice the qualifier. This is really important. Notice the qualifier. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. She may depart. There may be even a formal divorce, but this is not granting permission to remarry. The goal is to leave open the option, the possibility doesn't guarantee it, before there to be a reconciliation. Here is a simple summary statement of this question, and it's very important for us to understand it. Recognize in verse 10, God affirms his ideal. He affirms his ideal, and then he recognizes the hardness of heart, 
and the need for there to be an acknowledgement of the hardness of heart. But even with that, he's still, he's still leaving it to say the ideal is the ideal. Let there be a reconciliation. That's the goal. That's one of the hard things with modern divorce documents is that it describes it as irreconcilable. It makes it hard because even if it does happen, does it remain so that this reconciliation can take place? Now, how about the unbeliever question? How about that separation question from these people who are unbelievers? Remember I spoke of progressive revelation? We're going to see some very specific application given here that we may, we may look back at the Ezra situation and I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm going to be perfectly transparent with you. I'm uncomfortable with the Ezra situation. Now here when I look at the New Testament and someone were to come to me with similar questions relating to the Ezra question, God has in progressive revelation given us some very specific instruction as to how to deal similar situation within the church. We're out of time, but I'm going to at least read it. Verse 12. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. We don't have time to go into the significance of that phrase, but it's there. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. Here is the answer. You have a wife who's not believing. Picture the Ezra situation, but it's a different time. More revelation here given. A husband is a believer. He has a wife who is not a believer. She is pleased and content to live with him. By the way, if he's a good believer, she sure is going to be content to live with him, but he's going to love her. He's going to treat her real good. If she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. There's that phrase that means divorce. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not. And if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Vice versa. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. That means he's set apart. He's special. <laughs> by the way, marriage is all about sanctification. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. You see, God has designed and has a priority on children. We don't have time to go into the detail of it here right now, but he's, he is designed in a godly seed. That was true in Malachi chapter 2, too. Something significant about the marriage and children. But then he goes on, and he deals with what happens here. But if the unbelieving husband or wife depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage, in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. That means that if a husband or a wife is not pleased to continue dwelling with the Christian and leaves, the duties of a husband, the duties of a wife, you're not bound to them anymore. I'm going to make a clear note here. This does not mean that you're free to remarry. Context, context, context still applies. Context still applies. This under bondage is that, well, we don't like the ball and chains analogy for marriage, 
and I don't like it, but the point is that there is a duty that you are bound to in a marriage relationship. But if one chooses to leave of their free will, all of those duties that you may have to that person, many of, well, you, you could say they're, they're released. That's what it says. Verse 15 again. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? You know what we see is a beautiful analogy here that's different, very different from the dispensation of the Mosaic law. You see, in the Mosaic law, it was if your, your husband or your wife or your brother or your friend, whoever it is, even whispers to you of go, let us commit idolatry, you were to bring them to the council and you were to be the first one to cast the first stone. In the church, we hold no penal power. That means we don't hold any power to execute. We hold no power over men's lives in that sense. But this is a power, maybe wrong word, this is an influence, this is a privilege that we do have of exhibiting the grace and love of God. And the goal would be what? To see them saved. First Peter advises women along the same lines regarding unbelieving husbands. You can have a privilege in in demonstrating to them the love of Christ. Remember I said earlier what wife wouldn't want to live with a Christian husband? Huh. I'm assuming that he's a Christian husband who loves his wife the way that Christ loves the church. There lies the key. Do we live and do we live in our relationships both with believing and unbelieving in such a way that is pleasing and glorifying to our God. And we are out of time. And we have only scratched the surface. And I imagine that perhaps, let's see how many people are here. There's probably at least a hundred questions in your minds. Will you write them down? And will you be a ready scribe and search the scriptures to see if you can find the answer? I beg you to. Because again, this is not something for you to go, <laughs> dance around it. Embrace it. Engage it. Be a ready scribe. Be one who is ready to know what God has to say on it. Not only for you to have conviction in your own personal life, but to be able to help others, to be able to help console others that may come into your life. Understand not only the letter of the law, but understand the spirit of the law. I encourage you, meditate in Malachi chapter 2. I've heard many sermons on the topic of divorce, and I've heard it quoted that the Lord God Almighty he hateth putting away, and it's selected there, it's quoted as God hates divorce. And I've actually only heard one sermon my entire life that went into the context of Malachi chapter 2 to understand why God hates divorce. It's not this judgmental label that is put on people. 
it's a hard thing. And we need to understand God's ideal, and we need to understand what God has suffered, why he suffered it. And the real issue here is not about looking for a loophole for divorce. If you go to Malachi chapter 2, you're going to find this phrase repeated over and over. Take heed to your spirit. The hope in every relationship is the working of the Spirit of God in first a believer's heart, and oh, pray to God that both husband and wife are believers, but if not, that he was bringing forth in the believer's life fruits of the Spirit, and in the unbeliever that the Spirit of God is reproving of sin, righteousness, and judgment. How is the Spirit of God moving in our hearts? The Spirit of God is a key element to a successful relationship. And we must take heed to our spirit. Are we quenching him? Or are we letting him fill us to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit? The fruits of the Spirit are the healing fruits, may I say the healing medicine, to every marriage. Think about it. Against such there is no law. Be a ready attorney researching the law of Moses on this topic. But don't forget the one against such there is no law, the fruits of the Spirit. Anytime there's a marriage problem, go back to Galatians 5. We have the works of the flesh, and we have the fruits of the Spirit. There is, in a beautiful little package, the best marriage counseling advice you can give anyone. Right straight from God's Word. Galatians chapter 5, the end of the chapter. So, it's about taking heed to the Spirit. Every one of us in our marriages, troubles, problems, let's take heed to our Spirit. How is the Spirit of God filling us, using us? Are we exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit? It's not us striving or working to create them. It's us surrendering and allowing the Spirit of God to indwell us, fill us, and Him bring forth love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, control, being under control, meekness, being under control in spite of great pressure. Against such, there is no law. Let the fruits of the Spirit be flowing forth in all of our lives, no matter what our relationship status is. Heavenly Father, we com confess before you our weakness, our hard hearts. May, may you fill us. May we take heed to our spirits, and may we surrender to your spirit. We need you, and we need you desperately. We pray these things in your name. Amen.